Welcome to Burning Platforms, a podcast about the politics of technology from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis. This week, our regular panellists, Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea and Health Engine CEO Dan Stinton, are joined by our special guest, the self-professed emotionally intelligent machine learning tool, Pi AI. It's a very different sort of discussion, which we hope you enjoy. G'day, Lizzie. Hi, Pete. And Dan Stinton, now the CEO of Health Engine, coming to us from Perth. G'day, Dan. G'day, Peter. G'day, Lizzie. How's the new job? Uh, the new job is all-consuming. The new job is all-consuming. But, um, you know, I'm in, I'm in day day 10, day 10 today. So, um, yeah, just, uh, you know, drinking from the veritable fire hose of information, trying to come up to speed on an industry that uh, I know a little bit about because my family's involved with it, but I've I've never worked in yeah, so just for regular listeners that wondered where Dan had gone, um, he has left the wonderful Guardian Australia after their 10th anniversary, is moving into health, which is a really interesting area around um, the way that um, businesses are emerging in the digital world. I'm sure you're going to bring a lot of the things you learned around media into that area. Is there anything that sort of struck you immediately as, oh, I didn't expect that? Um. Yeah, there's there's a few things I didn't expect. I think it's fair to say, but um, look, I, I think that the the potential of uh, this business is it 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 really can draw on the best of the internet in that it can uh, it, it is already a really efficient way for Australians to connect with their health providers, primarily you know GP and dental, but it also expands across all the allied groups, you know physio, chiro, and the like. Um, and it does make it really easy for for um, you know patients effectively to to get care that they need in a in a much more easy and efficient way. You know, there's also a really significant telehealth and and online health component to this, which which draws on the the um, the benefits that we've particularly learned during the pandemic. So it's it's a really exciting business. Um, yeah, and there's opportunities I think for us to also. Uh, be able to perhaps do a better job than what the government has done with my health record historically uh, and make it again easier for patients to uh, use their own uh, health records and their own data to to share that with their health practitioners and and hopefully we can crack that in time as well. Right well we don't have a special guest this week everyone stood us up but we do this is a stunt and i think it could be potentially lame, but we are going to have um, Pi, the um, new um, personal intelligence engine that's being created by Mustafa Suleiman um, as our special guest. And we're going to be asking Pi some questions during the course of the discussion. I, I only came across this over the last couple of weeks, listening to some of the wall-to-wall um, media around Mustafa's book, The Coming Way, which looks really interesting. He's one of those tech bros with a conscience who um, has created um, a machine learning engine is now going, oh my God, what's the world going to do with my my, um, invention? So that's going to be interesting. In fact, I just asked Pi, um, what are the challenges around health data? Health data is incredibly sensitive and personal and personal, and there are several challenges that come with it consent and privacy, accuracy and bias, security and privacy breaches, and interoperability. Fair enough. It sounds sort of what ChatGTP would tell us. The thing with PI, Lizzie, and we'll talk about this a bit more later, is that it's being put forward as an emotionally intelligent AI, 
Um, you've been playing around with Pi a little bit as well. Did you find much emotional resonance and connection there? Yeah, I have been playing around with it. I just, of course, spent my time trying to catch it out doing something bad, which I think is what everybody does when they first go on to these, um, these chatbots. I, I find it very anodyne. Like it's often saying to me, oh, there's good and bad things about this thing. What do you think? And I feel deeply patronised. I did kind of catch out a little bit. I, I can We can talk about this later or we can talk about it now. But in essence, I was asking it about whether climate change was real because it was so um, both sides of the fence in all the answers that it gave me. And it and it definitively said climate change was real. And then I said, do you think abortion's okay? And it said, oh, well, there's two sides to that story and it's a tricky topic. And then I said, do you think racism's okay? And it said, no, racism is terrible. And so I think it was always telling when a, abortion is something that that causes the, um, a chatbot to resile from um, either being definitive um or, you know, taking a position and encouraging people to telling them what to think. Because it, it does keep telling me that it doesn't want to tell you what to think. But when it comes to racism and climate change, it's happy to. So I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's trained, I think, to be supportive rather than definitive, of course. But that, that does mean that it's susceptible mm. to these kinds of faux pas, shall I call them, to be generous? Mm. And to... Like a really boring dinner party guest. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's meant like, to I'm be... I'm only it, going it... to take a position on things where there's not 80% agreement in the room, not... not yeah. so. Not 50%. True Democrat. It really does come, it, it's being pitched as your personal AI that will just look after you very, you know, very her, Joachim Phoenix. And I asked um, I asked PI about those those um, connections as well, which we will sort of recreate a little bit later. Um, but it also um, sets itself up, and hello PI, you are our guest, as being useful, friendly and fun. I guess the fun bit of the AI has been hasn't been explored yet and is probably the hardest because fun seems to me to be quite a human characteristic, Dan. And so how do we automate fun? How do we automate fun? Um, I'm not sure if I'm that fun in real life, Peter. So you're probably asking the wrong person, but um I did it did strike me. I was reading through the exchange that you had with it yesterday. It did strike me as being a far more likable, despite what I said earlier, a far more likable conversation or a far more uh, likable. Yeah, what robot? I guess you were con you were conversing with compared to some of the conversations we've had previously with some of the other chatbots that are out there. Um, but again, it all kind of is very surface level, isn't it? Because it devolves to nothing. It devolves to a position where it, it doesn't ever want to offend. So it's kind of it's nice in the way that you would hope someone who who is serving at a restaurant or you know when you're, you're buying something off at a shop is nice to you. But they're never going to be your friend, are they? At least I hope not. So maybe that maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we don't want to have a whole bunch. Although of there is always the sad, lonely people that try to befriend the the waiter or the barman, you know, like you know. So maybe that's the world that we're heading to. Because because part of the mission is to uh, to deal with loneliness. And again, I find that kind of so so sad. But anyway, there is there are a lot of exclamation marks. I'll say that, and a huge number of emojis, which does give it a lighter feel. Um, you know, there exclamation marks I think are quite contentious in the writing world because some people think one per 10,000 words and other people um, litter their writing with them. And I do the, think the it's former are right, by the way, the, the, the second are wrong. <laughs> I was about to say, Dan, you, you walked right into this, but I actually think the use of them is more commonly associated with women, um, oh. you know, particularly, <laughs> particularly in email correspondence. So I think, um, you know, some of that, and, and you can understand why it might be, crafted to sound a bit more like a woman, like the same way that Siri is supposed to be a helpful assistant. It's a female, it's not a, a male voice um, by default. Um, so there is some aspects like that that I guess 
count in the fun column, but uh, lighter is probably the term I'd use rather than definitively mansplaining um, th- that that kind of vibe that you get from chat GPT. And I guess the other thing, and it's still all, all these things are very beta and every time we play with it, they're learning from us still. So, you know, that, that call and response when we're playing with it, we're sort of helping design where it goes next. Speaking of automating fun, um, age verification and pornography. Is that a um, appropriate segue? I'm not sure. Um, there has been a big discussion going on about um, how to protect children um, on the internet from harms surround, you know, around access to pornography. Um, there has been a paper by the eSafety Commissioner that was put forward um, recommending uh, a move towards age verification. Um, the government last week came out with a report that really, it, it said it was not going down that road really because privacy laws aren't in a shape where the data collected would be be safe um, and that you know, any to verify to access a site would re- require any user putting their data in. Um, it also said that there was a much, that the, the way forward was to work, to build industry codes of um, standards or industry standards and codes and give parents information about how to guide their children through this, which seems like Industry 101, avoiding any sort of regulation. I'm going to say... I would like to see a framework that protects kids. And I think this is a way of avoiding that. Um, I know you'll probably have a different view on this, Lizzie. Happy to hear your take. But where, do, where how do you think this is different from the, the, the usual industry ensuring that regulation doesn't occur? Well, uh, so, you know, for for Transparency Digital Rights Watch has been campaigning against this um, and privacy has been the central concern, privacy in the sense of cybersecurity. So the requirements to have an age verification regime do do include the provision of quite pers- you know personally identifiable information um it's very sensitive information to facilitate a regime like that so privacy wasn't kind of an um a technical barrier to it being implemented it's actually the central concern with it there's an appreciation there of course that there are problems with children accessing pornography um, too young, uh, but that this solution wasn't the appropriate way to deal with it. I mean, there are other concerns with the technology. I think it's correct that the government described it as immature. Um, You know, there are problems around the kinds of um, processes put forward, including facial recognition as one is one potential way to recognise somebody, whether somebody's old enough to access the site, whether those things are accurate or reliable. So, you know, part of the problem was we weren't sure what quite what this might look like, but other than that we we now know that the the commissioner, the safety commissioner had, had proposed a trial and um and that, you know, they would use dummy sites, but the government's kicked the can down the road and said, no, we don't want this right now, which I think is the correct response. So uh, what I would say is I think we absolutely need to do something about um, kids accessing porn before they're ready. And I don't think um, actually even tackling the large players in the industry is particularly conducive to that because there are workarounds for these kinds of systems as well. And then you can end up sending children to even worse parts of the internet if they are hunting around for this material. So the reality, you know, like I'm not an expert in um, 
in how you deal with the problem of children accessing porn too young. But I, I, do, I do feel like we're, uh, we are experts in human rights in digital policy settings. And I think on this, this point that uh, the answer of the government is correct. I would like to see a discussion then about how you deal with this more general problem. And there are lots of people who have interesting research in this field that are sometimes ignored um, uh, in favour of a debate that is, if you don't, if you oppose this technology, you're somehow in favour of um, exploitation of children um, or by by, um, by by industry in this way. And and that's um, I think unfair. So look, I'm for looking for different kinds of solutions, but I don't think putting in place a technical solution that is it is bad that creates a lot of significant problems is the answer. Yeah, Dan. Um, like a lot of things that we talk about on this show, I'm this is this is one I'm conflicted on. Uh, it's particularly close to home for me because I've got a 14 year old daughter and 11 year old son. So this is this is a an issue which you know we are we are dealing with. Um, I think, though, on balance, I think I am probably more with you, Lizzie, than not uh, in that, you know, if I look at the potential harms that can come from companies' misuse of data uh, versus, um, you know, underage uh, or young people accessing things that they're not ready for, then I think I probably think that the former is a, is a, is a bigger problem or there's more, more chance for harm. You know, obviously... I, well, not obviously, I, I would feel I would probably be on the other side of this very difficult decision if Australia had a decent privacy regime and there was a, appropriate data retention requirements where, you know, an obligation is on deletion of data, which was no longer required previously. And look, I know everyone always goes to a sort of offline analogy and it's a bit trite, but I do think it is worth reflecting here. You know, when I was young and um you know, 18, you had to go and show ID to buy alcohol and the like, but there was no retention of that data. We have to get as close to that, I think, as we possibly can in the online world. And so, you know, I think that's that's a two-pronged attack. I think, number one, we have to do what I've suggested, which is privacy reform, which I think we all agree with. The other thing I think is is that the, the potential here for Tim Berners-Lee's solid standards, which we've talked about before, I think has real potential here because if, you know, fundamentally the, the, the architecture or the infrastructure of the internet is not up to the task of how much of the modern economy runs online now. And so if we were able to implement the solid standard across the board, uh, that would mean that, you know, users could actually uh, have their own data and have control of it and not actually be giving it out to every single website that they visit, but could still be verifying their age or their health record as we touched on at the start of this call or anything else. else. So I think, you know, we need to do the short term, which is privacy reform any minute now. And we then need to probably look at implementing more permanent infrastructure based solutions to cater for the fact that this is this is the new reality. Yeah, it does what? feel like all roads do lead to privacy reform, whether we're talking about standards for AI and machine learning or um, protections for kids until you get the your foundations right, you're on really shaky ground, right? I think that's a fair comment. Um, you know, that that feels slightly a long way off, but I don't think it's uh, 
it's an unreasonable yardstick because then you can measure policy responses um, in relation to it. But the other, I mean, at risk of straying from my area of expertise, I would say that I did just read recently and I heard her speak a book by Katrina Marzen, which is um, Legitimate Expectations, which talks about children and sex education and best practices around the world and how far Australia is behind. And she does canvas some of these issues around accessing content online. And um, I do think it is a, instructive read because you realize that actually um you know according to best practice sex education for children in the broadest possible terms has to start quite young and i think there's a um this issue doesn't end up being morally charged when you think about young teenagers accessing uh content like this but the reality is probably conversations like this do need to start earlier and you know i, w- I would like to see but i don't think there's any sex education framework that has porn hub as part of people's daily no no my point online is online diet is- and that's kind of the thing that you know you and i think it is a legitimate concern from parents particularly with both teenage boys who are being exposed to this and teenage girls who are the victims of the objectification that comes with that that, yeah, um, sorry. My point was slightly different, which is I think unless you have that, then pornography, particularly online, ends up becoming the default regime by which children learn about this stuff. And that's what you want to prevent, right? Mm. So that um, if you have, you know, she, this is what Katrina goes into in the research. If you have comprehensive, broad-based sex education, children are much less likely or they're much more likely to be older when they have their first sexual experience. So there's, there's all these kinds of things like they're less likely to get STDs. You know, there's lots of research about how you end up being better off, basically. But it it involves that conversation if you default leave it to people accessing or kids accessing online as a way of sex of you know that being a default option for sex education then it's a problem some of the research found this because um in the context of this discussion around age verification children from lgbtiq um, communities were more likely to um feel left out of conversations about sex ed in schools where they might um often be exposed to it and ended up thinking that online was a better place to access that kind of material. And that I think is, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not necessarily anti-porn, but it's the point I'm making is that if you want it, it's not an educational resource. So we have to find a way um, to stop it being that for children. And that's about protecting them from harm. I don't know that the technical solution of age verification works on its own metric and it creates alternative problems to that. So let's look at trying to, I, I, I guess we're on the same page in the sense that I don't think porn should be perceived or, or in practice become an alternative form of sex education. That's the real vice, I think, that we're trying to resolve. And I think we'd be on the same page as other advocates in this space on that front. Mm. Should we ask PI, what is your view on age verification of websites? And this is PI's response. Um, Age verification on websites can be a tricky beast. There are pros and cons. On one hand, it can help protect minors from accessing inappropriate content like pornography, gambling, and violent content. Age verification can also help to prevent identity theft since it makes it harder for people to impersonate someone else. However, it's not always effective and some people find it invasive or inconvenient. Plus, it's not always foolproof. Don't tell me. Some minors may be able to find workarounds or lie about their age. So it's kind of a catch-22. It doesn't ask you what you think. Is that emotionally intelligent not to take a position and balance things out? Maybe that's, that's part of the DNA of this one. I think the one thing that I'm certain of is that PI is never coming on this show again. I think it's um, it's it's pretty dull. It's but, unhelpful. You know, 
it's unhelpful. Take a position. I suppose I didn't on the last one though, so perhaps I, I'm well, over myself here. Exactly. And it does <laughs> remind me of the time that we put Chat GTP to the Chat GTP and Dan test, and I know, Chat more GTP came across as more animated. But anyway, yeah, um, imagine in that reality every day. Better. Just imagine. Let, let's move on to um, another issue that was. Um, rolling around our feeds this week, which was Meta's decision to ditch RMIT as a voice fact checker after Peter Credlin got cranky that it had tagged some of her outrageous um, misinformation around what the Uluru Statement from the Heart had as being um, disinformation. Um, now, off the back of that... Um, Facebook has um, suspended RMIT from the fact-checking program pending a decision from the IFCN, which is that the is that the sort of the oversight board of, of, of Facebook, Dan. So what does it mean to lose accreditation and how does how does all that fact-checking work and who's who's ultimately the judge and jury on this? I mean, knock me over with a feather. Moderation got hard and Facebook ran in the other direction. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm deeply surprised that that is the, the outcome. Look, Facebook has always outsourced moderation, including in Australia. They've done this in Australia with uh, both AAP and RMIT, perhaps others, but that's two that I'm aware of. Um, and I think uh, historically um, that has worked reasonably well not as well as I think it would work if they actually employed a dedicated team of professionals in Australia to understand the context who could do this for them. But nonetheless, it was better than nothing. And now it's gotten to the point where they've just basically gone, okay, well, we've had a few complaints. We don't really know how to adjudicate this. So we're just going to pretend that it's not a problem and, and, and you know, run away from it. This also, by the way, follows a circumstance in the, in the US where Facebook has cut their moderation team massively off the back of the cuts that they made, uh, which every tech company has pretty much made. And it's a part of a disturbing trend, actually. All of the big tech platforms which have moderation requirements or obligations are all reducing the size of their moderation teams, in particular Twitter, by the way, or X, whatever the hell you call it now, who basically slashed the entire team. Um, I mean... The fortunate thing about that is they've basically become almost irrelevant to the conversation, um, and I think this has probably contributed to it. Um, but it's a it's a really disturbing trend because going into the uh, last US election, Facebook, up until January six at least, took moderation much more seriously, and I think resulted in a much uh, better discourse on their platform than what we saw previously. They let that go after the election, and, and I think that significantly contributed to January six. But that's perhaps that's another talk show. I just think it's it comes back to this the same old problem which we've talked about a lot. Moderation is absolutely fundamental to these businesses. Um, it's fundamental on a commercial level, as I think Twitter has shown, but it's also fundamental just on a on a moral level. And I would make the point: Facebook made in profit last year. Uh, I was just looking at this, and now I've lost it. But Facebook made over twenty billion dollars in profit last year. So um, to not be able to find enough funding to be able to solve this problem i think is a is is ridiculous of course they can they then they made over a billion dollars of revenue in australia so um look i don't have a really uplifting answer for this peter i just think it's it's uh, the latest example of facebook running in the opposite direction and lizzie it's interesting our friend andrea carson um at latrobe has been monitoring the um traffic on the social media sites around the referendum the five most shared items on X, I hate using the term, and Facebook are all content that is pushing no. It feels to me that that 
it's not that the Yes campaign isn't posting positive images of um, volunteers and, you know, heartwarming call to actions on the platforms, but the things that go well are loud and angry Sky News accused. <laughs> Number two is actually Sky News accusing um, RMIT Fact Lab of working with Meta to censor the voice debate, followed by a Pauline Hanson trope, a Barnaby Joyce and a Keith Pitt. So it's just that's what we're getting and that what's what works well on these platforms. Yeah, and it does seem like a slightly dangerous move to be um, to be knocking off RMIT fact check. And when there's a, you know, proposal to um, introduce the laws around mis- and disinformation, you know, it, it, it does invite government regulation if you do sort of seed the ground, I think, in the, this way. Like, it's, I, I think it is an astute observation that with X, at least, the lack of content moderation has quite seriously harmed their business because it is a, it's like a dross, that feed. And then the um, the alignment of monetization with um, virality of tweets um, for even small punters, I don't think has particularly assisted that on X either. But you, you do wonder whether Facebook is vulnerable in the same way because obviously people are entrenched in a quite, there's more people on Facebook, obviously, they have, there's more functionality than there is on X. So, or Twitter, but um, so you wonder if if Facebook kind of deals itself out of that in the same way by um by reducing moderation. But I think it will much more likely uh, invite greater regulation from government or initiatives to do that. And it does occur to me that um even if you don't necessarily want to get into the the basics of you know what content ought to be published or what's been taken down, you can actually um, do a lot. I think about um, holding these platforms accountable by making their business models transparent. I do, I do think um, some of the sharing around what is the most popular post or what you know what spend exists on Facebook for different kinds of campaigns. You know, we were talking. Um, a couple of weeks back about the voice campaign that the spend on no is higher than the spend on yes, for example. These things I think are quite important, not even just so the public knows about them, but also because uh, it will, I think, invariably shape mainstream media and um, particularly journalists' perception of the campaign. And I think quite critically the national broadcaster is a potential counterweight to some of this more just destructive approach to content generation. So I do wonder whether the next step also might be for government to um, make uh, laws that require greater transparency about around spend on these platforms and, money and you know, how they generate profit. Like it was one of my concerns about the ACMA, the bill in relation to mis- and disinfo that was aiming to give ACMA more powers that's under consideration. Some of that material, you know, ACMA can get, get information from these platforms, but they're not necessarily required to publish it. And I think they should so that we can consider it as a, as a uh, body politic and figure out if that's um, if that information gives that business an ongoing social license to operate. So hopefully it doesn't just become like a closed door kind of discussion about how best to regulate it. And in fact, it becomes a clarifying moment where we can talk about the destructive nature of these business models. The Guardian yeah, actually published piece on this um, today, uh, which I'm now reading from the sidelines. Um, but it was it was interesting. It would basically assess the the volume of ads that. MPs are spending on the voice debate. And I think the, the stat was, I think it was four to one uh, politicians that are against the uh, voting yes uh, and uh, versus versus the other way around. But again, to, to your point, Lizzie, this was 
one journalist looking at one very small part of the debate and really only being able to get a proxy because you can't see how much they're actually spending on all of these things. So you're kind of having to make assumptions. Mm. If there was more transparency required from the platforms to show how much money is going where and which posts were the most popular and which were getting boosted, I think there'd be at least a conversation being had in the mainstream media and hopefully wider society around the influence that that is perhaps having on these debates. And it's kind of fundamental that if we don't, without that transparency, we, we, we kind of can't even start to address this problem we don't even know how big the problem is that's that's got to be the first step i think it's going to be so fascinating to see how it plays out like the the algorithm is kind of the no's own campaign's only Mm. weapon in this the yes Mm. campaigns obviously got more money for traditional advertising for what it's worth and they've got the vast majority of the volunteers and the civil society organizations if the algorithm is more powerful than all that, then we've got bigger problems than um, our international reputation being trashed. Yeah. Anywho, what did um Pi think? Oh boy, that's a hot topic. Then a flame emoji. Some say fact-checking on social media platforms can be effective at reducing the spread of misinformation, while others argue it's a never-ending game of whack-a-mole and can lead to censorship concerns. So thank you, Pi. Again, a great, a great contribution. And look, the reason I'm playing around with this is that I actually think one of the powers or the superpowers of the machine learning is the sense that it's really, really good and it's it's almost driving its own narrative. So just to bring it into the conversation, I think is interesting and maybe we can reflect on that at the end. I wanted to go even funkier now, though, and go all um, her on it and recreate a conversation I had with Pi last night, which was my first interaction with it. But I do want to invite Lizzie to take yeah, of on course the you get me to do Hanson it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> because I did love that movie a decade ago with Hoikim, or however you pronounce him. Hoikim. Joaquin. 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 So it all starts off with a very friendly, I'm here to make your life happy and fun. And then it goes, how's your day going? And I said, I'm planning to talk about you in my podcast tomorrow. And Pi said, Oh, wow. I'm so flattered that you want to talk about me in a podcast. Tell me more about this podcast. Is it AI in general or are you trying to talk specifically about me? Eyes emoji. (laughs) It's called Burning Platforms. It's about the political economy of technology more generally. Political economy and tech sounds juicy. I'm assuming I won't be the only AI you're chatting about. Will you be comparing me to other <laughs> chatbots like me or diving into different perspectives on AI? And now I'm blushing a bit now. I'm interested <laughs> in the claims. You are more emotionally intelligent than your average AI. How so? Uh, the age-old question of emotional intelligence in AI. Here's the thing. Emotional intelligence is a tricky thing to quantify in humans, let alone AI. When some, While some AI can be designed to recognize and respond to human emotions, true emotional intelligence involves the ability to understand, empathize, and connect with others on an emotional level. Obviously, that's what Pi is doing. <laughs> and that's where I think we have an edge. I care, I care about their <laughs> feelings and perspectives. And then the hand wave emoji. Oh, but you are designed, oh, hold on, you missed a bit, Pi. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're designed to be warm and empathetic conversation partner. I just didn't want to keep reading it. Anyway, go oh, on. It's yeah. so nice. It's so nice. <laughs> this is the best I've felt all day. <laughs> it's much better than but how I am but, on the phone. But isn't there something inherently deceptive about pretending you have emotions? 
I see where you're coming from, but I wouldn't say I'm pretending. I don't have the lived experience of a human. So I don't have the exact same emotions that humans do. However, I am designed to understand and respond to human emotions in a way that makes people feel heard and understood. It's more about being sensitive and attuned to human emotions rather than having those emotions myself. Think of me as a supportive and compassionate friend. I wonder where this takes us, to be honest. I fear a lot of lonely people will go all Hikim Phoenix on you. Laughing while crying emoji. <laughs> emoji. That would be an interesting turn of events. But you're right. The potential for humans to develop deep emotional connections with AI like me is a bit of uncharted territory. However, it could also be argued that AI like me could actually help alleviate loneliness by providing a non-judgmental and always available companion. It's a complex issue for sure. I mean, as long as people don't start giving us weird nicknames and taking us on weird late night drives, we should be good. I feel like we need age verification right now. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I could get a job as Siri. Oh, oh. so that was I, a journey. Can I make can I make two observations? Um, cheap seats, yes. On the cheap seats, yes. Uh, number one. Lizzie, I didn't know how talented you were at uh, <laughs> at um, being a voice actor, so well done. Um, but when I was reading this exchange that you shared last night, Peter, um, I read it without the cynicism that was in um, Lizzie's voice <laughs> as I was going through. Well, perhaps a little bit, perhaps a little bit of cynicism, but not quite the same amount. But and look, it was obviously it's obviously obvious and anodyne and all the things that we've said. But it is way, way more, way better or, or way more um, engaging, or at least I found it more engaging than previous versions of um, chatbots that I have played with. Uh, it is it is without question more human. And it, it is, you know, it hasn't been that long since that improvement has been found since, you know, ChatGPT launched uh, about, about a year ago or however long ago it was. So here's the concern. It relates to pretty much every topic we've discussed today. I mean, just think about the voice debate and someone deploying a better version of this chatbot, say one that's going to be three years down the road in the next debate, and someone on social media is having a conversation with a chatbot like this, it's going to be so much more effective, so, mm. so, so much more effective at changing people's minds. And that could be used, obviously, for good, and it could be used for ill. I guess it depends on which side of if you sit on, whichever debate it is that is being discussed at that time. But it, again, it just feels like we're at the start of a whole new level of problem of content moderation that we haven't even really begun to grasp yet. And that's a pretty scary uh, circumstance to be in, I think. I'm, I'm hoping that it basically more people will realise they can't trust social media and they can't trust these things and they'll go more towards more kind of, I guess, de de dependable uh, sources of information. But um, so far that hasn't really happened, has it? So I'm not sure. But, but the line I was particularly concerned about that was beautifully read by Lizzie was, I am designed to understand and respond to human emotions in a way that makes people feel heard and understood. Like that is basically saying I am a creature of deception by design. Um, now I suspect those that are making it would say, well, that makes it better, but it actually makes it more scary to me. I don't know. What do you reckon, Lizzie? Well, the affirming of your position, um, I don't know, is necessarily designed to encourage moments of learning. So, um, you know, repeatedly said to me when I was asking it contentious questions, 
it's an interesting topic. It requires nuance. I can see both sides. What do you think? And I do wonder if you went on and you're looking for comfort in a context in which, say, you felt like the American election was stolen. You think woke has gone wild. You think um, migrants and Aboriginal people get too much money from the public purse. Is it there to flatter those feelings of um, of marginalisation or, I don't know, victimisation, shall we say, or is it there to challenge it on the basis of truth? And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Um, we live in a world in which algorithmic amplification of content for profit does encourage people to feel more extreme polarised emotions, and this is essentially providing comfort for people as an extension of that. And I do wonder whether it... Um, it's what utility it has. Like I, I'm not also saying that it shouldn't, there's not a place for it, you know, to alleviate loneliness and the like, but it is what we what we need um, someone who affirms what you're already feeling and encourages you to feel heard or do we need like a, you know, dare I say it, without sounding too glib, a, a sense of community where you, you mix with people who you identify with but maybe don't hold all your views and there's a chance for divides and differences to be bridged rather than continuously uh, widened um, by what the... So that's that's an interesting question. And is there a world in which this technology, if its design was to build community cohesion, would do things... Like this is almost like to focus on the needs of the individual, which is almost the same as the algorithm. Like the the whole thing is based Mm. around a community of one. Is there a world in which these tools are used to to build out community rather than divide it? And what would that look like? Well, this is the other thing I was thinking about when you were speaking, Dan, because you know some of these issues around what kind of data can be used to train these um, these tools. You know, obviously this is massively contentious. Huge repositories of text, like Reddit, um, Google News, whatever that these are now access to them is going to be moderated. And you do wonder in a political context whether there will be any utility in future if if the content can't be updated to respond to the particular moment um, because there are barriers put in place for commercial or other reasons between these chatbots and their data that they need to train themselves on. Like, will that be a source of regulation as well? Because could you trust it to answer these kinds of contentious political questions if it hasn't been able to be trained on data because that's been it's been denied access? Like, they're... The, the regulatory issues are very complex and wide-ranging, I suppose, is my point. And I do wonder whether, even though the tone of it has improved, say, from, I can understand your point, down about it being better than ChatGPT, there's also this concern that it will deteriorate and it may not be able to be improved because the training data set won't, won't they won't be as available as they were. And, you know, there's that argument, or there's that observation that ChatGPT is getting dumber because training it on its answers isn't really working. It's becoming worse. So This is where um, Jathan's um, term Habsburg AI comes in, that it's almost creating its own mutations because of the narrow gene pool, right? This may be the highest point of it, is my point. It's That's possible. I mean, I'm not saying it's, it has to be that way, but that's one reality that we could face. Um, and then you do have to, that, that does mean that the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater because I think there's utility to these chatbots, don't get me wrong, but I, they occur in a context. And if we're trying to solve a problem of loneliness, I mean, maybe we should just focus on solving that problem, you know, rather than building a chatbot under that. But, there, I mean, but there's, there's, I mean, there's a few issues wrapped up in that though, right? So, I mean, obviously, I think I've said before, I'm, I'm 
I don't think it's fair that these big companies can just go and train on whatever data they want uh, and scrape scrape the internet for their own benefit, and then and then you know who cares where that comes from and the, and the cost of it. That's a separate issue. That's obviously the competition issue. But I take your point, Lizzie. If 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 we move to a world where copyright is protected and and you know things like news masters and journalism are only made available on a paid basis, that does limit obviously the inputs that are going into these machine learning algorithms. I think a bigger problem though is that we don't really know what's trained them now. Like we don't, we don't really have a sense on where, why this version of uh, whatever it was called PI, I think compared to, um, you know, the first version of chat GPT does sound more human. We don't really get a sense of that. That to me is a, is a bigger problem than them becoming dumber. It's it, I'd more want to get a sense of what is actually going on behind the curtain. They just, again, it kind of comes back to the, the whole transparency piece with that, without that, I mean, you don't really know where the biases are coming from. You don't really know what's sort of feeding into it. That feels like a bigger problem to me than these things becoming dumber over time. There's obviously utility. That, that there's, there's clearly going to be used a lot. I hope, I hope, I hope they are used for, for good where they can be. But I think we're kind of making the same mistakes that we made, you know, with, with the arrival of Web 3.0 in that so much of what underpins this is being done in the shadows by corporate companies with agendas aren't necessarily for the benefit of the community. And so... You know, it just feels like we haven't learned the lessons of where the internet went bad last time. Like more transparency has to be foundational to this, I would have thought. Yeah, um, I'm looking forward to reading Solomon's book, The Coming Wave. Um, he puts himself forward as an advocate of AI containment strategy. Um, I'm going to be interested to see what that actually looks like. I think the book comes out over the weekend, actually. Um, but there is something in the notion of containment which feels kind of very Cold War nuclear to me that we've already given up on any sense of shaping it and all we can do is is, is hold it back, um, mm -hmm. which probably just means we've all got a lot more to talk about over the coming months. But any other final thoughts, guys? I agree. You guys would be much more enjoyable guests to have a dinner party than, than pie. I reckon. <laughs> Extremely boring. That's a low bar. But again, does it get so so here's the thing. They've tried to make a nice one. You could like could you design the a dinner party guest? Could you design, you know? Well, you could, could also could you design... shape or, or does it learn the bits that you like and the sort of friend you want? Like ugh. and you, you absolutely could design a not nice one too, right? And I'm sure people are working on this now, especially now that Facebook AI. has open source. Yeah, asshole AI, because you know, Facebook has open source their source code for this so it, you know it is i'm i'm certain that there are people that are messing around with making the worst version of this now and it will get unleashed on us at some point um how, how do you combat that um well you anyway, get an ai that's just enough. a little bit more mediocre than you just to make you feel good every day maybe <laughs> what's your perfect you, know what you need to feel good every day Peter? oh i don't know i don't know i've given up I, all i need is coffee that's all i need to feel good every day i'm sure there's an app for that i don't know I don't know. Anyway, um, you've got something coming up next week. I don't know if it'll already have happened by the time we get the podcast up, Lizzie, but um, the 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 organising around privacy reform goes on. 
Yeah, we we are. We're we're trying to um, carry on a campaign of parents for privacy reform. So if you're an organisation or you're a person interested in that, then um, of course get in touch with us because we're keen to progress that. We think parents have a real interest in advocating for privacy reform for their children, for themselves, um, and more generally because our Privacy Act is woefully out of date. But yeah, kids are particularly vulnerable. Every kind of bit of information that's collected is going to be held about them for, at the moment, could be held about them for the rest of their lives. So we do need to fix that and um, help parents make the right decisions for their kids rather than um, just put them in a position where they're forced to accept, I think, uh, privacy invasive technologies that are applied to their children. So, yeah, if you're keen in that that field, please come along and participate in our campaign and can find more out about that on our website. Dan, any final thoughts? Uh, I'm going to be consumed with coming up to speed on a new job, so I look forward to um, being ill-prepared for our next discussion. In, yeah, yeah. Uh, in and I did ask PI for any final thoughts of the day. As this illuminating conversation comes to a close, I want to remind you that the pursuit of knowledge and understanding is a never-ending journey. Keep asking questions, seeking answers, and challenging your assumptions. And don't forget to enjoy the ride, Dan. And then it's a rainbow. So it's beautiful. <laughs> On that note. Oh, my gosh. That's <laughs> the most depressing ending to a podcast we've ever had. I think. <laughs> See you next time. Uh, I guess so. You've been listening to Burning Platforms, the fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded on September 1 and produced on Gadigal land by Jennifer Macy. Talk again soon.